Hello, welcome to Converging Dialogues. This is Xavier Bonilla. On this episode, I am very excited to bring the conversation I had with Philip Goff. Uh, Philip is a philosophy professor at Durham University uh, in the United Kingdom, and uh, he's also the uh, host of a podcast, Mind Chat. And he spends much of his time thinking about the big questions of life, nature, reality, why we're here, where we're going, uh, many other uh, big, big, big conversations. And he is the author of the latest book uh, entitled Why the Purpose of the Universe, uh, where he gets at many of those uh, questions. And that's obviously what we talk about in this conversation and uh, I have to say, this was a uh, this was a fun one. This was a this was really a fun one. Sometimes I can kind of get a sense of uh, a guest, you know, if I've talked to him a little bit, either you know online or through email. Uh, I actually didn't talk to him too much beforehand, and uh, we just kind of hit it off, and <laughs> we had we had a spirited debate, uh, mostly around uh, the conversation, the bit of the conversation about. Um, value nihilism and value fundamentalism, I believe. And uh, it was fun. It was fun. We, we certainly disagreed, but it was like a, a fun way of, of disagreeing. Um, and, I, and I really enjoyed that because it was, you know, nothing personal, no ad hominem stuff. It was really just, you know, how, how do you see it that way? I don't, I, don't, I don't see it that way kind of thing. And, but still trying to understand the, the, each other's perspectives and uh, he's such a good interlocutor for for these types of debates and big questions, and they don't really have answers, right, of sorts. But they're important things that we may or may not think about on a you know regular basis. And so it's uh, it was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed the conversational nature of the conversation. Um, you know how we just kind of were able to kind of rib each other a bit, and it was all in in, uh, in good fun. And those kind of conversations are. Not something you can really plan. They kind of just happen organically. And he was he was just, you know, really, really fun and, and really awesome to have that conversation with. We started by talking about why we're here. What's the purpose of living? We talk about how much meaning do we really want from life? I thought it was a really interesting question. Uh, we talk about values. We talk about morals. Um, you know, are there absolutes? Are they relative? Why are they important? Um, we talk about... Uh, kind of what he's known for, of sorts, is uh, his ideas on panpsychism. Talk about a little bit of integration information theory and some of the differences there. We talk about consciousness. Uh, we talk about some of the implications of panpsychism. And, you know, what, where, where do we go uh, in thinking about these questions, right? What, what kinds of questions are we going to ask, you know, 50 years from now, 100 years from now? How much of this stuff do we get settled or not? And so it's just very, very, very interesting. Uh, again, I had so much fun with this conversation. I, I really, really enjoyed it, and I'm really happy to share it with everybody and hopefully get uh, listeners to to think about these questions as well. And of course, they can continue uh, the conversation by getting over to the Substack, which is Convergent Dialogues at Substack.com. It's uh, pretty interactive. You can obviously follow, like, share, uh, contribute, uh, tell your friends, etc. And uh, you can also follow on YouTube as well uh, and share online and uh, feel free to, to reach out and uh, continue those conversations that uh, Philip and I have. And uh, it's all, all a lot of fun. So now I bring you Philip Goff. I'm here with Philip Goff. 
Philip, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I'm uh, greatly appreciative for, for you coming on. Brilliant. Thanks for having me on, Xavier. I'm really looking forward to having a little mm-hmm. chat about this. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you've written a, a really, really uh, excellent book. It's called Why? The Purpose of the Universe. Um, this isn't your first book, is it? No, thanks for the kind words. Um, so I've written an academic book called Consciousness and Fundamental Reality in 2017. And then I wrote a book called Galileo's Error, which it was on similar themes, mm-hmm. but very much aimed at a general audience. Um, and there was also a book recently I co-edited called Is Consciousness Everywhere, which was scientists and philosophers and some spiritual thinkers um, responding to Galileo's error. And then, mm-hmm. uh, so yeah, so my first book was an academic book. My second book was a book aimed at general audience. This one, I'm trying to do both. So each chapter has a more accessible opener and then a digging deeper bit where you get more into the technical details. So probably mm. it'll please no one. I don't know. But uh, yeah. Uh, no, no, no. Uh, I, was, I was very pleased. Oh. Uh, I was very pleased. I enjoyed all the details. So, uh, and I like engaging with with different ideas and uh, different concepts. And some of them I, I was a little familiar with. Um, you, you might not know this, but I was uh, a long time ago, a little more religious and I went to a seminary and I, I had lots of arguments and debates with people. I'm not religious anymore. I'm, I'm an atheist. So, um, but uh, yeah, so it's, it's, it's very, it's very interesting to hear some, some of those hypotheses and theories and, and uh, uh, certain debate points. Um, you know, either similar or, 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 or kind of repackaged. So it was, it was a very interesting read for me. Well, probably everyone's going to hate me with this book because, um, you know, normally people fit into one of those teams, you know, the kind of religious believe in God or the secular yeah. atheist, you know, you're mm-hmm. on Dawkins side or the Pope side. And I'm, I, right, I, right. I, I guess on just over a long period of time, I've come to think, both of these worldviews are inadequate. Both of them have things they can't explain about reality. So the book tries to critique both of these worldviews and then explores the uh, mm. much neglected middle ground in between. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it certainly does. And uh, that's, that's, uh, that's what I want to get into. Um, so before we get into uh, the details of the book, why don't you... Uh, Tell folks uh, just you know what your professional academic background is. You talk a little bit personally about your background in there, so we can maybe get to that later, I guess. But um, yeah, professionally, uh, where are you kind of coming from, and, and what you're you're currently doing? So I'm a philosophy professor at Durham University here in the cold north of England. Durham's the uh, third oldest university in England after Oxford and Cambridge, so it's all kind of Harry Potter land, like. Oxford came down here. It's <laughs> not what I'm used to, actually. I never went through the kind of Oxford thing. Mm. But uh, yeah, so mm. I'm interested in questions of the ultimate nature of reality, how it all hangs together. Most of my work's been on consciousness, how consciousness fits into our scientific story of reality. And I guess I've been most known for defending panpsychism, the view that consciousness mm-hmm. goes down to the basic building blocks of matter uh, with electrons and quarks having incredibly rudimentary forms of experience and then the complex experience of the human and animal brain being built up from these simpler forms of consciousness at the most fundamental level. Mm. And I've tried to argue that's the best 
solution to the mind-body problem, the best way of understanding how consciousness fits into reality. But I'm interested in you know, questions about many aspects of the nature of reality, free will, value, mathematical objects, how all these things fit into our story of reality. If, if indeed they do, maybe they don't exist. Maybe some of them don't exist at all. And so I'm carrying on these themes in this new book. There's, you know, there's some of the um, panpsychism there, but it's also these more bigger, even bigger questions really of meaning and purpose and why do we exist? The biggest question of all. Hmm. Well, you know, you're, 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 you're definitely not tackling the easy <laughs> questions. So, you know, the hard questions are, are the hard ones. So it's, it's, it's a, they're no fun though. And then you just like, oh, well, that's how it is. Okay. And then, you know, it's, it's life is boring at that if you just do that. So, so let's start with the all important question, which is, you ask, what's the point of living, right? What's the point of life? Kind of why are we here? Uh, you, I believe in this chapter, introduce antinatalism uh, here. And so you can talk about that and what the connection is there. But I guess why ask this question to begin with, right? Some people might question that, like, you know, well, you know, other animals aren't asking this as far as we know. Why, why are we asking this? Why is it important to know? Uh, what's the point of living if there is one? So what are your kind of, kind of initial thoughts there? It's a good place to start. I mean, actually, I, this wasn't something I was necessarily seeking out. Uh, you know, in some ways I feel a bit uncomfortable. I've ended up defending this strange sounding view. And, you know, most of the book is just arguing that we do have philosophical scientific reason to think there is purpose or some kind of goal directedness at the fundamental level of reality. And that's just the way it is, whether you care about it or not. But of course, it is natural to think about how this connects to human meaning and purpose. And so maybe the first chapter and the last chapter are where I try to connect it to human meaning. And, and roughly speaking, there are two views you hear quite a lot out there. I'm always up for get breaking through these dichotomies, but you often hear two views. At one extreme, uh, some, some religious philosophers like the Christian philosopher William Lane Craig think that if there's no cosmic purpose, it's all just pointless. Life is meaningless. We might as well kill each other or just do whatever the hell we want. And not only religious philosophers, as you say, uh, as you pointed out, David Benatar, uh, and the antinatalist perhaps most well-known proponent of antinatalism, mm -hmm. which is the view that it is immoral to have children because life is so dissatisfactory for whatever reason. Benatar has a number of ways of pressing this, but one of them uh, is, is that life is, because there's no cosmic meaning, life is not totally meaningless, but pretty meaningless. And so Benatar thinks it, it it, the, the moral thing to do is to let the, the let the human race pass out of existence. That would be a better state of affairs. Uh, this has almost become a sort of religion in its own right. There was this, in, I referred to in the book, this Indian guy who tried to sue his parents for bringing him into existence. It was thrown out of court. But um, <laughs> So that's one extreme. The other extreme is, you know, many secular atheists say, you know, it would just be irrelevant whether there's cosmic purpose. And I was on the BBC with Daniel Dennett last week, uh, talking about our new books. And um, yeah, I mean, I guess this is Dan's position. And, you know, we make our own meaning. It, it's just irrelevant. So I, I, have a, I have a sort of middle way between these two views. I think um, 
even if there's no cosmic purpose or regardless of cosmic purpose, we can have perfectly meaningful lives if we pursue kindness and truth and creativity and so on. You can have a very meaningful life. But perhaps life can be more meaningful if there is cosmic purpose, if, if you can contribute in some small way to the purposes of the whole of reality. That's about as big a difference. You know, we, we want to make a difference in our lives, don't we? You know, you don't want to just spend your whole life, you know, saving the life of one worm or something. That's all, all you achieve. You want to make a difference. If you could contribute to, in, in a tiny way to the purposes of the whole of reality, you know, that's about as, as big a difference as you can imagine making. So, so that's where I come down. And I guess the, this comes, returns in the final chapter of thinking how this could connect to spiritual practice and spiritual communities and politics as well, political struggle and how, cos, how, how that might all fit into a bigger picture. But yeah, so, but the main theme of the book really is, look, this is just probably true, whether we care about it or not. Hmm. This, uh, this point that you make, this kind of middle way of, well, yeah, we could have meaning uh, kind of in the Dennett position of sorts. And, you know, why not? We take care of ourselves and people around us. But this other way of, well, wouldn't you want more meaning if you could have it? I'm not sure about that. I don't, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I think maybe for a lot of people, but I think, I mean, I think maybe for, for another whole subset of people would be like, nope, that's fine. (laughs) It's fine. If people want to do that, that's fine. But I I think it's, I think it, it really does depend on the sort of perspective you're taking, right? If you're taking this view of, you know, life must be, or it has to be bigger than me. And I, I want to have more of this meaning. I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing, but I don't think it has to, it has to be that way for people. I don't, I don't think it should be that way for people. I think there's, because then you're, you're already baking into that some kind of moral hierarchy of sorts of like, well, you just like meaning for you and your family and your life and what's impacting you. But you know, I'm doing it you know, for me and my family and, you know, this organization and for starving kids all over the world, or I'm doing it for, I'm finding some bigger meaning of sorts. And there is a type of maybe kind of embedded, like, I don't know, it's like a higher morality of there. Am am I wrong on this or no? Yeah. I mean, I don't have totally firm, fixed views on this and I'm open to persuasion. Uh, you know, Thomas Nagel has this very mm-hmm. interesting paper called The Religious Temperament. Mm-hmm. And he, he's not somebody who is religious. He's not somebody who believes in God. But he says he has the religious temperament. And he thinks of mm-hmm. that as a desire to connect up the meaning of your life to the meaning of the universe or the whole of reality in some sense. And Nagel just says, you know, I have that. A lot of people have that. Some people don't. That's fine. Hmm. Um, and yeah, I mean, I suppose, I suppose it, I mean, you know, part of what I'm doing in the book is just look, opening up other possibilities. We're Uh used to this, you know, are you religious or are you just a secular atheist? You know, I didn't mean to say just then, you know, which are you? I mean, as in, you know, you don't have the big heavy duty (laughs) metaphysics, but maybe there are other options that, Hey, Uh maybe you might, you know, 
whoever's listened to this, you know, try this might, if, if, you know, this might be something you get something out of. So as I've, you know, it's only kind of the last five years I've slowly been drifting around this path. You know, I wouldn't have imagined writing this book five years ago, but I guess I've come to find it a, and I talk about this in the final chapter, I've come to find it a, a meaningful way of living life to a sort of daily kind of prayer, quote unquote, you know, not, not exactly prayer in the traditional sense like you're talking to someone, but a daily act of, you know, trying to commit yourself to uh, live in hope of some greater purpose to, to what's going on and that what your, your own life and your own life projects and those of your loved ones connect to some greater reality. And I suppose I found that to be a meaningful way of living, helps keep my ego in check. Uh, I'm not too, I'm fortunate enough not to be too driven by power or money, but you know, to some extent I've got a bit of an ego, you know, uh, and something to try to keep in check, you know, and trying to connect things to something beyond yourself. And look, you know, I mean, a lot of this at this point, so as I say, I'm arguing that there's reason to take seriously some kind of cosmic purpose, but you know, who knows, it might not involve human beings. There's the, the philosopher Tim Mulgan has a very interesting book arguing that there is cosmic purpose, but it's nothing to do with human beings. Hmm. Uh, we're just an accidental byproduct. So who knows, you know, it might not have anything to do with anything we can impact. And to some extent, you know, I agree with William James that, that it can be rational to hope beyond the evidence to an extent, you know. Yeah. I don't think it would be rational to sort of hope aliens are going to come and rescue us or something. But to an extent... We're only here once. Everything's very uncertain if you can find a meaningful way of living your life. And so I suppose I'm sketching out a possibility. I'm not trying to say, look, this is definitely the only way to do things and you're on board or you're out. You know, I'm just suggesting, look, hey, this is a little bit different to the, mm. to the standard options. Might be worth a go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think that what, what's really nice about what you're saying and what's in the book is this idea of folks who try and figure this out for themselves and for their worldview. I think one of the worst dangers of religion is that it gives you all the presets and it says, here's what it is. Here's what happens when you die. Here's what, here's the way to get to everlasting life. Here's the way to live life here on earth. Go do it. And, you know, I think a lot of people like that because they don't have to think. They don't have to, they don't have to really use, they don't have to find it. And, you know, I, I do, I do agree. There's kind of dichotomies of sorts of like, well, this, you know, not everything should be DIY necessarily. So, you know, secularism of sorts is, it's almost too abstract. It's too nebulous. And I think there are some really good things such as, there's a lot of good things that religion offers, you know, in terms of um, tradition and symbols and, you know, things like that, which I think are good at the very least from a communal and anthropological viewpoint. But I do think in terms of, you know, dogma and doctrine and things like that, it can get, um, you know, obviously pretty dicey when people, because those things aren't like, well, you know, just kind of believe this if you want to. It's usually more from a religious perspective of, you have to believe it with every single ounce of the fiber in you and just, you know, you have to, be, you know, it's, it's all, it's, it's an all 120% or nothing. And I think that's where it kind of gets dangerous. But anyways, what you're saying in the book, there's this kind of like, well, 
you know, you could use either one of these ways, but I think as long as you're finding what makes sense for you, I think is, is what can be important. It could be, you know, empirically wrong or empirically right, but I think it's, you know, at the end of the day, it's your life and how you're living. And I think if you're trying to live in, in a way that has some kind of, uh, you know, uh, you know, for the betterment of yourself and others, I think that's right. You also mentioned this idea of values, right? Which is also interesting. Uh, you talk about value fundamentalism and value nihilism. Uh, maybe just kind of explain the two concepts and and what you're trying to show there. Yeah, good. Oh, there was so much in there to say, but uh, yeah, I, I, I maybe a, we can move on. We'll, we'll get bogged down. You, you, can, you can go ahead. What, what did you want to respond uh, to? Oh so no, sorry. I don't know. Um, yeah, yeah. I suppose. Yeah, I mean. Just these, I mean, these matters are so complex and we should have a, a great deal of humility. But that goes two ways, that goes both ways. I mean, in terms of bias as well, it goes both ways. I think, I think, um, I think we're, at least the circles I move in, you know, I think we're very alert to religious biases from religious upbringing. I was raised Catholic until I decided I didn't believe in God when I was 14. But, but I think we're not, you know, we need to be alert also of, of secular bias. You know, I think of, there's always a worldview that every generation has a worldview they absorb and it's difficult to see beyond and you, you get laughed at if you counter to it a little bit. And, um, you know, I think, for example, with the fine tuning that we might get onto, I, I think we're sort of a little bit in denial about that because it doesn't fit with a sort of dominant secular worldview. So I think, yeah, I think we need to have due humility Mm-hmm. With but on both sides with these questions, and I mean, I certainly, I mean, I'm certainly not saying I'm totally certain about any of these things, and mm-hmm. you know, just continuing continuing the discussion, I think, is is the important thing. Um, but yeah, so so a part of this is discussing the question of the reality of value. Um, so value nihilism and value fundamentalism are two two polar opposite positions, I guess, on the question of value. So value nihilism is just that there are no facts about value. There is not, not just, it's not just, you've got to be careful here. It's not just like we make up our own value. We can choose. No, 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 no. There is no value. There is no reason to do anything. No reason to believe anything. No reason to, you know, so I, I mean, what, what I, one thing I really learned in my graduate study was realizing how pervasive value claims are. I used to think about, you know, value, and I think about morality, you know, is murder bad and so on. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's easy to think, oh, maybe that could be an expression of our emotion. But, but value is all over the place. Like when you say you should believe the evidence. If you have an argument with someone, mm-hmm. you say, look, look mm-hmm. at all this evidence. Mm-hmm. That, that's, a, that's a value claim. You ought to believe evidence. You know, a person could say, oh, I don't care about evidence. We so say, you should. Um, or, you know, if you're in pain, you should get a painkiller. Or, so, so the value nihilist claim is really radical. It's, there is no reason to do or believe anything. Because reasons are value claims, you know, mm-hmm. what you have reason to do. Whereas value fundamentalism, the polar opposite view is there are objective, fundamental facts about value, independent of us, independent of the truths of natural science. In a way, you can think about it, 
comparing it to, to, to mathematics. And often this position is associated with Plato, who uh, believed in this realm of mathematical truth and moral truth. So, so the value fundamentalist, I think, I mean, I think this is just a word I made up for the book, actually. Well, I guess philosophers would generally call it robust realism or mm-hmm. non-naturalism about value, it's often called. Mm-hmm. But anyway, I, I thought they sounded a bit techy, so I called it fundamentalism, that there are just fundamental, just as there are basic facts that two plus two is four, you know, that's not made up by us. Most people would think, some philosophers would disagree. But similarly, mm-hmm. there are facts about, you know, Torturing children is bad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sorry, taking a vivid example. Or <laughs> it's okay. understanding and knowledge is good. Uh, facts about good and bad totally independent of us. And and there is you know a position in between which says, well there is value, but we, more softer. You know that maybe maybe it's constructed by us, or maybe it's dependent on our desires or something. So so that would be the in between position. Um, yeah, in, in most most philosophical positions, you have these three options. Actually, like, are you a hardcore realist <laughs> on one extreme, or do you think it doesn't exist at all, or are you sort of, yeah, it exists, but it's not that hard. With free will, you have that as well, right? You have like uh-huh. really strong free will, or no, no, there's no free will. Everything's determined. Sam Harris thinks that. Or the middle way position is, yeah, there's free will, but it just means you know, uh-huh. you're not tied up or in prison or something. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so yeah. Anyway, that was a long-winded answer. No, no, this is good. It's good. Yeah, I think that there. Mm, I'm not sure. I mean, I, I think. I mean, I kind of do agree with the value nihilism thing. I think, but I don't. I don't just agree with that. So I think, at bottom, you know, you have. Let, let's just take the the. The, the main argument here is you have the big bang, you have the universe, at least this universe, um, and galaxies and planets. And then you have life or what we call life. And you have all these things moving and they're moving in the forward era of time. And we get very complex organisms and we get invertebrates and then we have vertebrates and then we have mammals and we have social mammals and we have all these, all these things. And I just don't think any of that has inherent value. We want it to, but I don't think any of it actually does, but that's okay. I think that that's fine because for me, I see all of that as like a blank canvas, right? Okay. None of this comes with its own kinds of things necessarily, right? It, you can, you can find the value in, if you want, if you're a value-making species like uh, humans are, and I think other animals are as well, uh, at least here on Earth, is, yeah, there's value in um, asking that question. There's value in asking questions. There's value potentially in, you know, nature and with other animals and in our relationships and then things like that. Does it inherently, you know, is it endogenous to the organism? I don't think so. I don't think so. I would be nice maybe if it was, but maybe it wouldn't be because then you wouldn't be able to kind of say there's not this like fungibility of like values because everyone has different value systems. Now, I think there is probably a long history and there's a lot of cultural dynamics at play 
throughout our long history on humans or as humans on the earth of, and again, this has to go with, you know, how our brains have developed as homo sapiens, but is, yeah, most people would say murder is wrong. You know, killing children is wrong, no matter what we, but, but we set those morals, those values in other, uh, with other species, infanticide is kind of normal. There are many other animals on the planet that do that, and they don't know any different. So I think that, you know, and then this breaks down with, you know, groups, and then there's tribalism, and then there's, you know, religion, and then there's cultural differences, and then there's, you know, history, and there's, um, you know, hierarchies and dominance. And, you know, so humans are complicated, and we make, <laughs> make it worse for ourselves probably than we should. But I just think at bottom... I don't think there's anything endogenous to to these things, but that doesn't mean that we can't have in place value. And that is, I think we, this is my view. I think we should do that. I think our life should be living that way. And I think when you can kind of strip it from this is how it has to be in this kind of deterministic way, I, I think that that's, that shuts down our ability to create or to rather, well, create and or rather you know, uncover what could be there or what could be in something. Um, so I, I also do a kind of both and, uh, but, but maybe, maybe, maybe a little bit differently than how you do. Yeah. Oh, I love this conversation. The way this is my favorite philosophical conversation. I talk a little bit about the book, you know, my journey with this and deciding I didn't believe in value. And so I, Kiss my best friend's girlfriend and said, "Sorry, there's no morality." It's like, anyway, but no, that's a silly comment. But um, I don't know though. What you said then, I'm not sure whether it was value nihilism or the middle way position. Because at some point you said we can find meaning and we can make meaning, and and that's not the nihilist position, right? That the, mm, then you're, you're talking about you you believe in meaning, right? It's we believe in value, we make it. But the nihilist position is, no, 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 no. Everything <laughs> is pointless. Uh, there is no value. And so this is, I think I, this is what I'm trying to get at in the book. I think it's, it's so hard to really go for the nihilist position. And not, so, you know, the, I mean, the, the classic example of Camus and, mm-hmm. um, you know, Camus, it's, it's a bit difficult to interpret Camus, actually. I mean, maybe some Camus experts will think I've got him wrong. But on the face of it, he seems to be and value nihilist. You know, it's, uh, this life is absurd. There's no, but then he sort of says, oh, but we embrace the absurdity and then that's mm-hmm. a good thing to do. And it's sort of like, hold on. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You, you're smuggling in value by the back door. If there's no, if everything's absurd, that, that's, it's meaningless, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, so this good friend of mine, uh, Bart Stroemer, who's a, a Dutch philosopher, who is perhaps one of the most consistent, and it's really hard to do, nihilists. So much so, you know, he's a very techie philosopher. He's really thought through all the invasions. So much so that he says he can't believe his own view. Because he thinks, well, to reflectively believe something, at least, he thinks you have to take yourself to have reason to believe it. Mm-hmm. You can't say, um, you know, I believe this, but I don't think I've got reason to believe it. I mean, maybe you can if you haven't thought it through, but if you. So, but he doesn't believe in reasons. He doesn't think there's any reason to believe anything. So, he, all, he, all he says is, 
the arguments point in that direction. <laughs> <He doesn't laughs> so I think it's really hard to, yeah. So people say, you know, often say, I, I, yeah. And, and so, right. So let me just lay it on the line. I think people so often say, I don't believe in value. We, I don't believe in value. We make our own value. But then, a, a, that's not value nihilism. And my worry about that middle way position is it's bridging the is ought gap. So this is what mm-hmm. yeah, David Hume is it anyway, the in a way the great the secular saint of the, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. naturalistic mm-hmm. position. And he said, you can't go from an ought to an is. You can't go from sorry, an is to an ought. You know, you can't mm-hmm. go from plain facts about the natural world to what ought to be done or value claims. But this, well, this is what I talk about in the book, which, which blew my mind. Moral philosophy professors, when I was a graduate student, talk conversations in the pub saying that he contradicts this. Mm. Because Hume also says in the very same book, this is a subtle point, this, but I think it's so important. Reason is and ought to be the slave of the passions. Note the ought there. So Hume <laughs> says, your reason ought to be about pursuing your desires. So if you desire to be a lawyer, you ought to go to law school. But look, you've just bridged an astronaut. You've said you desire something that gives you a reason. And like, if you're talking about we make our own meaning, you know, we've done certain activities and then there's meaning. That is bridging the fact value divide. So I think, I think really a lot of people, I think who say they don't believe in objective value Actually, they do <laughs> because they think when they when you say we make our own value, on the face of it, you're saying some magical things we do mm-hmm. make bring value into existence. Uh, and why is that? I mean, why is that any less mysterious than um, you know someone else's pain giving me a reason to help them or something? I don't know. So I think to be consistent, we've just got to say. Everything's pointless. There's no reason to do anything. There's absolutely no reason. It's just everything's like counting blades of grass, you know. It's just and and then and I just think really that position is base is kind of unsustainable. But. Well, what I would say is is that yeah, yeah. So to be clear, I'm not a value nihilist in the, in in the in one sense, right? I, I think there is there, you know. I'm a bag of contradictions. But what I would say on this I'll is, feel. I would say, it's not that we're meaning-making necessarily. So not actually, right? So I'm not trying to do this like tautology or whatever. So I, I promise I'm not. I think it's just that something, if you take it at a very basic level, we're reacting to something that's that's going on in our world, our environment. And the thing we call it is meaning, right? We call it meaning. It's not actually meaning. But it's okay. for us, that's how we're labeling it or d- describing it. If you want to go full postmodern, that's what language is doing, right? All that stuff. Like it's just calling something. But really, it's there's an experience that's happening. And the experience is, right? The experience is. And in 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 terms of trying to 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 find, you know patterns literally with without even if you're trying not to have value if you just take it from a pure mathematical like this and this adds up and whatever like i think the thing or the process or the experience of what we're putting into something as an organism 
coming into contact with something else in the world, for some people, they're going to see that as what is called meaning making. It, it's actually not in the objective, you know, pure objective sense, but it doesn't matter, right? Because it's saying, this is how I experience it. That's what I know. I create meaning or value out of this and I move about in the world. And that helps me to, you know, organize my, you know, kind of locus of control, if you will, in the world or with other people. It doesn't actually have value or meaning. Um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily maybe say that absolutely. I'd have to think about that if, if maybe there is exceptions to that, but I'm just kind of pure riffing on this. I, I would think that in general, if I say going to my friend's birthday party gives me a lot of meaning, but there's no actual meaning in going to the birthday party. There's no actual experience or there's no, um, there's no meaning in the experience. I'm having an experience and what I want to call that or what I want to categorize that is meaningful to me because I think what's loaded in that is the phenomenology of it, is the relationship, the history, the emotional feeling, et cetera. So we're taking the whole gestalt of that experience and saying that in and of itself, those parts don't have any meaning. Nope. It's not a big, it's just another birthday on one planet in a galaxy and the birthday's not even that significant, right? It's just someone came into being, right? They came into existence. Big deal. But we put all of those things in there for various reasons <clears throat> to find patterns and to find habits as humans to, uh, you know, kind of move about in the world. And, and so I think that is all well and good. But I think at bottom, I don't think it actually does because we say we make meaning. That would be my kind of approach to it. But maybe, maybe again, maybe I'm, maybe I'm using a shortcut or I'm cutting corners here or let, I'm doing a semantic let, thing, but. Let me try and, no, it's very interesting. It's, it's, it's difficult to pin down. As, so, I mean, I guess there's two kind of arguments pressing the book. So that's, I mean, that's kind of one of them about, you know, how the, the contradiction in Hume and, I mean, I'm not, I'm not exactly a Hume scholar. I mean, there's lots of ways of yeah, I'm not either. interpreting Hume. So some people, so, I mean, how I phrase the book is, you know, there was, it was a contradiction in my understanding of you but as I was taking it then. And I think how a lot of people take it and a lot of people take on the view as their own. And I think there is a contradiction. But I mean, I suppose when push comes to shove, I, so here's look, all, all you can ever do in philosophy is start with what seems most evident. Like, you know, I don't know. I might be in the matrix right now, you know, <laughs> As Bertrand Russell said, maybe the world was created five minutes ago with all mm -hmm, the mm -hmm. all the history, as though it, you know the evidence created out thin air, as though there was a past. You know, we don't know anything for certain, but you just gotta. I think all you can do is start with what seems most evident. Right? Here's something. Let's see. Here's the value intuition. Let's see what you think of this. <laughs> You'll probably disagree, but anyway, the value <laughs> intuition, which seems to me like more evident than I've got a hand here, mm -hmm. that. Something so so yeah. When I'm if you're just thinking about like oh is murder wrong, you can sort of get into the mindset of oh maybe we just don't like it or something. Mm -hmm. But here, here's the I, I'm I'm going around in circles here. Hold on, I'll get to the cut to the chase. Here's the value intuition that seems most evident to me. Some things are more worth doing than others, or some things are worth doing in a way that other things are not worth doing. Right. I mean, the example I gave in the book is counting blades of grass, but 
I thought of like a, a more psychologically realistic um, thing to focus on. I mean, you think about, you know, the craving for power for its own sake. I think our former prime minister, Boris Johnson, suffered from this, you know. He didn't want to be prime minister, you know, because he was all desperate to change the country. And lots of, he just wanted to be prime minister, right? He liked yeah. power. I want to say that is, that is pointless. That is, Not to you him. Know, that is just a waste of time. Whereas if you're pursuing um, pleasure, pleasure, that's, 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 worth, that's worth pursuing or, or understanding or knowledge these things are worthwhile. Uh, creativity, whereas pursuing that, power that's is a waste though. of time. But that's subjective, well, I'm, right? I, I, I'm, I, I'm suggesting... I mean, I'm not giving you an argument. I'm saying it seems to me that, that, that there is an objective difference here. And that seems to me more evident than the reality of the table in front of me. Just... That's that's. I'm just talking about how things seem to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that there is a difference between, or you know, to take the example in the book of just somebody. So the example, you know, somebody who dedicates their life mm-hmm. to counting blades of grass. Now they don't get any pleasure from it, but they mm-hmm. don't enjoy it. Mm-hmm. They've just got this because be- I mean, David Hume says all basic life goals are on a par. You can't value ration, You know, say one's better than the other. So this person, their fundamental life goal is to count as many blades of grass as they can before they die. I want to say, what, what a bloody way, what a waste of life. That is, that is utterly pointless. Uh, that, you know, that, that, yeah, they chose to do it. They're free to do it. But that, that is a waste of time. And that seems to, as opposed to somebody who, you know, spends time trying to cure cancer or pursue scientific truth or just have a good life for themselves or their family or whatever. They're, they're worth doing, but count, spending all light count blades, that is just utterly waste. Anyway, that, that, that just seems evident to me. But the problem with that, I mean, look, I agree with you. <laughs> I don't disagree. I you think, don't agree with me. You I, don't agree with I, me. I agree you with you in the fact up. of if somebody wants to count blades of grass, I think that's a colossal waste of time. Fully agree with you on that. There's but what do you mean by that? You mean you mean the, you the don't difference is though it. is that that's what it is for you and for I because of our value system that we find as we have a hierarchy of what is worth someone's time or what is not worth someone's time. There are plenty of people that would say gaining and maintaining power is the ultimate aim. That's how you can have effectiveness. That's how you can be remembered in history. That that is the most important thing to do, and they find tremendous value in that. They're wrong. I want to say they're but, they're, just, they're wrong. That's fine, but that would be. But that's just so subjective. <laughs> I just don't think. Okay, but the, yeah, the difference we're having is is what's right. what what is like endogenous to the thing itself, and I just don't uh, think there is that. How do you how do you know it's subjective? How do you know? I, so my view is there are facts of the matter here, and you're you're saying. No, no, it's I, objective. How, how do you know yeah. it's objective? And I, I don't. I don't. Yeah. I will be honest. Yeah. I will say I don't. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I'm sure we have many points of saying like, that's a waste of time. That's a good amount of time. Reading, I, when I look back on my life and I say, how many hours did I spend watching the Kardashians and how many hours did I spend reading books? It is, 
I think I've watched a total of 10 minutes of that show. I, I swear to you, I've, I've seen maybe 10 minutes max. But I have spent, I mean, it has to be hundreds, if not thousands of hours reading good books. Mm-hmm. That to me is a good use of my time. That, what, that's I don't valuable. know what you mean when you say it's a good, if you don't believe, I don't know what that means when you say it's a good you. In my mind, what I have mm-hmm. as a concept of good, and I guess the use would be productive, that's what it is for me. I don't think, look, you could say, because then there's just too much variance here. If somebody is just reading Daniel Steele romance novels, and they're like, well, I'm reading, I think that's a fucking waste of time. That's a waste, well, you, of, that's a I, waste I of time. Know, I don't know how to understand the claim that something's a waste of time if we're not talking about objective value. What does it mean if, if, if it doesn't mean that? Then it, it we're saying, I don't like that. Well, no, it's not, that's not what I'm saying. It's not saying I don't like that. Um, I mean, like, I think if you think about the difference between if you're, you know, you're raising your kids and some things your kids might be into that you just can't understand. You know, I don't know if my kids get into soccer, as you Americans call it, uh, you know, I, I've got no interest. Even though I'm from Liverpool and so you say from Liverpool. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. I've got no grasp on that. But that's just, that's just, that's just what I don't like. But if yeah. my kids want to, you know, spend all day, every day watching mm-hmm. crap TV and smoking weed and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, they can do a bit of that, but uh, all day, every day, <laughs> right. then I would say, it, I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to be happy then. And that's not just like, oh, I don't like that. It's like, that is, you're wasting your life. You're not, and... And then you want to say, oh, oh, I think those things as well, but, but I'm not meaning them objectively. I don't, I don't know what that means. I just don't know what that means. But why do you I, have I think, to have... I think, you sh- I think you shouldn't say... I, I think you shouldn't be allowed to say those things. <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm being a bit facetious, but like, I don't know what That's they funny. mean. You should just say, I don't like that. You should just say to your kids, you know, I don't happen to a- like that and I'm going to make you do what I, what I, what I personally what, like. Uh, and it, that's, I mean, that, that's the, but there's ni- a difference. That's, that's, that's the only consistent nihilist position, I think. Maybe, maybe that, that may be true, which, I, and I'll grant you that, but I'm saying that in a, in a sense, it's not a matter of preference or affinity. Look, if someone wants to shoot up heroin their entire life, I don't like that. I don't think that's a wise decision. Personally. Wise. What does wise mean? <laughs> it's what I Just want it to you- mean. All you're allowed to say is, I don't like it, I think. It's not a preference. It's not, it's, there's, there's preferential things. I think, objectively, that is. That is a way to go about living your life. And some people could be like, that's a, that's a great way to spend your time. You spent your time yeah, chasing the dragon, and you're having bliss, and you will die anyway, so you're just going to die that way. Who cares? I mean, okay. some people think that's, some people that's think a way the to world think about is it. flat. Some people think the world is flat, but and that's you know, that's wrong. the way they think. But that's the way yeah, I can't. Wrong. But again, they yeah, are the, they are objectively wrong on that. Content. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, well, I, I I think as a as a value fundamentalist, I think you can be right or wrong about value too. You know, I think if someone thinks, you know, power is worth pursuing for its own sake. They're wrong about that because that's, that's a pointless way of spending your life. Uh, I would just question, I guess the, 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 the disagreement we're having here is 
where do those uh, foundational value claims that you're saying are kind of, I don't think you're saying absolutes, but maybe you aren't. Like where where do those come from? Where where are those are those just like that again very good question. endemic to the thing of power? Like okay, so there's this construct of power that we as humans have created, and somewhere nested or embedded in it is this like absolute value that if you just seek it for its own aim, that's automatically a bad value. Where does yeah, so the, where does the standard come from? It's a really good question, and I don't have any any really good answers to it um, other than. What I do say in the book is we've got a very similar problem with mathematics, I think. You know, I think there are, you know, most mathematicians in mathematics departments, they take themselves to be discovering mathematical truths. Uh, they are what we call Platonists. They think there is some reality to, to mathematics beyond, mm-hmm. you know, a timeless, eternal reality. And, okay, two big questions what the hell? Where, 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 how, how did, what, what bit of reality has numbers and sets of functions? And how the hell do we know about it? How does it impact our brains? How does this mathematical reality impact the physical brain? Uh, you know, Roger Penrose talks about the, the mystery of the three realms, the physical, the mental, and the mathematical. Mm-hmm. They all seem to interact. So, so, and I think it's exactly the same with value facts. There are, you know, there seem to be um, timeless truths of value that we somehow know about. And so my, my cop-out answer, is that a US phrase as well as a UK phrase? Cop-out I know what it means. But so maybe. Yeah, is to say, uh, you know, well, whatever ends up being the case for morality, sorry, whatever ends up being the case for mathematics, we could say that in the, in the value mm-hmm. case as well, like Plato did. But um, I don't know. It's a very, but look, well, actually, I mean, we can link this to, uh, to another bit of the book because one, so one of the things that I think is, is quite original perhaps about my book is that in dealing with the fine tuning, I, I suggest we can think of the fine tuning as evidence for the reality of value. Um, should we talk a oh, bit about that? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, so, okay. So let's, so, okay. So let's do this. So, so uh, just, just on, on this bit, I hear what you're saying. I do. I do hear what you're saying. I think you understand what I'm saying. I think we both don't entirely know, and that's fine. It's a it's a it's a perennial <laughs> debate. Yeah, I mean, what you're saying. It's a fun is, debate. It's is, fun. Is a is a legitimate, um, you know. What, what the, 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 the important it's, the important it's, point it's, of it's it is is that I don't debate. think you need the values to do or not do something. If I think that drowning cats is wrong, it doesn't matter if I think it's wrong. In a world in which we live with other people, you shouldn't do it. Well, that's a good question, actually, because I, I guess... We do, we I do guess it all I'm, the time. I, I guess another time. thing I think Hume is wrong about is psychology. So Hume has this idea that psych, human motivation bottoms out in just brute desires. I want to do this. I, want, I don't think it does, actually. I think motivation, a lot of the time, bottoms out in, I think this is worth doing. Yeah. Got bottoms out in a value claim. I mean, I, I don't, I I'm, this is an empirical question about human psychology, but I'm inclined to think that actually our just real human motivation depends on a commitment to objective value 
We, we, you know, when you think, oh, what am I going to do in my life? But you don't think as Hume imagines, what are my basic life goals that I've just had all along? And no, you think, what would be a meaningful, what would, what would be worth doing? And um, if you do come to the co- conclusion that the nihilist seems to embrace that actually nothing is worth doing, then I think that is what depression feels like. So, so I'm not mm-hmm. so sure you can live out the, the, the nihilist position, actually. I think I'm inclined to think, actually, just even the most basic human activities, like, you know, you're a restaurant, you think, what shall I eat? What you do, I think, it's a subtle thing, right? I think the problem, problem is we use the word desire in lots of different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you, you're not thinking, if you're thinking what shall I eat, you're not thinking, what are my basic goals of food to eat? You think, what would be enjoyable? I think that's mm-hmm. what you think. Mm-hmm. You think, yeah, what would be, because it's pleasure is worth having. So I think even the simplest tasks, I'm inclined to think, um, even the simplest human motivations. You know, what, what is it like? I, I think we also have compulsions. I've got a bit of OCD, like, you know, avoiding mm-hmm. cracks on the pavement or something. That's just something I, I, I feel like doing. Mm-hmm. But most of the time, I think, or a lot of the time, at least, we think what's worth doing. And mm-hmm. yeah, so well, yeah, well, I, I guess I, I'm I, suspicious I, that anyone, that people can really consistently I, I think anyway. I think I mean I agree with you about Hume a bit. I think it's both of of sorts. I think we have kind of our primordial nature of we have a lot of instincts, we have a lot of drives that are pushing us that are unbeknownst to us, and all of a sudden, you know, it 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 kind of gets uh, transported up to our brain, and our brain's trying to make sense of it with history, culture, norms, morality, value. And then it does this sort of washout and we get whatever actions or behaviors we're having, which is essentially the Freudian model, right? Now you could hate Freud, that's fine. But this idea that we have these drives for pleasure and these drives for, um, you know, brute force and things like that. I mean, I think that's, it's not all it is. I mean, it is a reductionist argument. But I do think that there's this combination of things of like, why, why did I look at that person that way? Why do I all of a sudden want to punch this person in the face? I don't want to do that. But like we're having to deal with the instincts that are coming from somewhere. So I don't think it's entirely what's worth something or what's valuable or things like that. I think we eventually get there or hopefully, hopefully. Um, but I do think it's a kind of mixture of sorts. And oh, I, think, I, I think there's some levels yeah. to that too, but, but yeah. Yeah. I don't want to overplay what I've just said. And you, you know, you're totally right. It's a mixture. It's, you know, and there's fascinating empirical evidence for yeah. how wrong we get our motivations and, absolutely, you know, and of course prejudice and yeah, bias yeah, yeah, yeah. is, is rife. hundred percent. Um, but still, I think, you know, mixed in with that, I think, especially in our more reflective moments, we, a large part of it is, you know, what's worth doing? What would be a good idea? What would be wise, as you put it earlier? Now, you know, that doesn't mean it's those. So I think there is a a, a commitment. I suppose what I'm saying is there's a commitment to value objectivity deep in human motivation. 
Now, that doesn't mean it's true. It could be we're just totally deluded and it's all just, you know, we've evolved these reasons to, you know, motivations to think that and it's all bullshit. But, um, but, but then it ends up, but then value nihilism ends up being like a radical skeptical scenario. And to my mind, it's, well, how is that different to like, maybe we're in the matrix or maybe, you know, so I I just think all all, all you can do is start with the facts that seem most evident. That's how I start philosophy. That's why I start theorizing. And, Mm -hmm. you know, what seems most evident to me? Well, you know, my, my conscious experience, probably the most Mm -hmm. evident, then maybe, you know, truths of mathematics and logic. And, and then this basic value intuition that like, understanding is worth worth pursuing mm-hmm. power is not worth pursuing for its own sake that just seems to me not that far off a mathematical truth you know in the way you just in the way it's just evident the two plus two is four that kind I, I of basic contrast about no, what's no. worth doing and what's not worth doing seems to me not as certain not as certain but not far off the the power thing just is so interesting i mean this just shows kind of i guess some of our differences like i don't i don't have a I don't like it, but I don't have like a big, I get it. Like I get it. Like I get why people want that. And I, it just doesn't, I mean, I don't like it, but I, I kind of understand it. So, okay. Okay. But, but, but let's, but okay, but let's go to, I want to go to the, the big topic, uh, uh, that, uh, that's in the book. So, um, we've, we've sorted out morality and values. So now let's sort something easier out. So consciousness, uh, is something everyone is, I think confused about. <laughs> it's just so complicated. It's just a it's a strange thing. So the the question here that I have is is about consciousness and panpsychism. Um, so you can explain what panpsychism is, and then also how it's similar or wrapped up with the integration information uh, model in, in theory, and then how it's different because there's been criticisms about that. Um, but I'm, I'm curious if there, those criticisms are for the, that theory and panpsychism or if it's different. So maybe just, uh, explain the kind of nuance there. Yeah, it's a bit confusing, isn't it? So, I mean, I think it's very important to distinguish the scientific and the philosophical hmm. questions of consciousness. So, so as I see it, the scientific task for a theory of consciousness is to track what we call the neural correlates of consciousness. Mm-hmm. That is to say trying to work out which kinds of brain activity go along with which kinds of experience. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's very difficult to do because you can't look inside someone's brain and see their feelings and experiences. So, but you can ask somebody, right? And you can scan their brain and you can ask them and you say, you know, what do you feel if I stimulate this bit? And it's very difficult, but that's the scientific task. And integrated information theory is one proposal of what the, what the physical correlates of consciousness are. Mm. Okay, but then that's not, in my view at least, that's not the end of a theory of consciousness because we ultimately want to know why? Why why does that kind of brain activity, whatever it is, go along with an inner world of colors and sounds and smells and, t- you know, why would that be? And at that point, I believe you, you turn to the philosophy uh, and there are different proposals, the, the materialist view, the panpsychist view, the dualist view. These are different explanations of why and why consciousness and physical reality are connected together at all. So, so the integrated information theory is, is a scientific theory. 
but it it has somewhat panpsychist implications to the extent that it implies that more things are conscious than we previously thought. For example, that uh, plant cells, cells in a plant are conscious, according to the theory. And I suppose the signatories of this letter were worried about these bold implications and thinking, you know, is this, although parts of the theory have been tested, maybe the theory of a, as a whole hasn't been tested. So maybe there's not empirical support for these more panpsychist implications. Although, you know, there were quick, there was quick to be many responses on the other side. People saying, for example, this is true of all theories of consciousness and the, the only bits of them are tested. And it's, it's more um, a fact about our current neuroimaging techniques. So I, I wrote, people might be interested, I wrote a piece on The Conversation for this, which is an online magazine we have in the UK for academics to get research out to a broader audience. Um, but yeah, so there's a, there's, a, there's a hot topic. I mean, I mean, on integrated information there, I've got lots of criticisms of both the philosophical and the scientific aspects. But one thing it is trying to do is to try and bring both together in understanding consciousness. Mm. And I do think at least, I think that's what we need to do. Um, even though we can, you know, maybe criticize the particular ways it's doing it. But anyway, that, that whole fight is somewhat different to panpsychism as a philosophical mm -hmm. solution to the mind-body problem as opposed to materialism and dualism. So these are just separate things, really. Mm -hmm. You've got your choice of it's like, think of it mix and match. You know, you've got two questions. What's my favorite scientific theory of consciousness? Could be the integrated information theory, could be the global workspace theory, and so on. What's my favorite philosophical theory of consciousness? Panpsychism, physicalism, dualism. And you can actually mix and match these in different ways, right? You could have a dualist version of integrated information theory. Anyway, so yeah, that's, that's the starting point. No, theory, that's, right? that's very, very important. I think that, that, that clarifies a lot of things, in my mind at least. Um, so I guess about about panpsychism. I mean, the claim is philosophically is is that consciousness is in all organisms on the planet. Um, and so the question I have with that is: is it consciousness in the same way that it is in humans or other animals we think have consciousness? Is this just not being alive or sentient? You know. So what what's the kind of difference in definition if it is? If it is there, and I guess kind of historically, I mean, there's, I know that this was like really like taboo. Like people are like, this is like woo woo. This is like complete bullshit. Um, and then people started being like, well, you know, let's give this a second look. Cause I think there were some pretty, un, you know, uncharitable characters that were pushing this kind of stuff that was a little like pretty, pretty, you know, hokey and stuff. But I think people have seriously considered a little bit more and be like, yeah, some of this is like, yeah, if you, you know, place your hands on the rocks, you're going to get all of this like energy and stuff. Like, I mean, it got pretty weird, but like, there is like more of a serious kind of turn towards like, yeah, like we should consider what this looks like and, and, and how that would be and things like that. So there does seem to be a little bit more of a kind of re-examining of, of panpsychism now from, you know, even from people that maybe before kind of, you know, kind of shunned it. So. Yeah, how do you how do you kind of understand how this idea of consciousness, what it looks like in humans as we know it, sort of in humans, and from what we might think it would be in other organisms? Yeah, there really has been a rapid 
change here. You know, in the last 10 years, it's gone from being a view that was not, not really on the table or treated as absurd to, to being still a minority view, but, you know, a, a credible option that's published on and taught to our undergraduates and so on. Um, so it's not just the view that all organisms are conscious. It's, I mean, the basic commitment is that the fundamental building blocks of reality mm-hmm. may be fundamental particles like electrons and quarks, maybe universe-wide fields. You know, it's a question for physics. What are the fundamental building blocks of reality? But whatever they are, they have on this view very rudimentary forms of experience. And then the experience of the human or animal is somehow built up from or derived from those more rudimentary forms of experience. Um, so it might not even mean all organisms are conscious. It might, you, might, you can be a panpsychist and not think plants are conscious. It's because you could think that only, so you might think particles are conscious, but only in certain rare combinations mm. do they come together to make uh, conscious, unified conscious systems. Um, so, I mean, the way I see this is, I think at the core of this, we have the old philosophical challenge known as the mind-body problem. How does consciousness and the physical world fit together? Consciousness that we know about just through being conscious and the physical world we know about through using our senses, through science. How do these two things fit together? That's, you know, a lot of philosophy to me. How does it all hang together? And there are various options, you know, Maybe the physical world is the fundamental thing and consciousness arises from physical processes in the brain. That's the physicalist option. The panpsychist option puts it the other way around, that it's consciousness that's fundamental. Mm. Certain facts about consciousness and physical reality emerges from underlying facts about mind or consciousness. Or the dualist option, they're both fundamental. Consciousness and the physical world, maybe consciousness is in the soul and that's distinct from the physical body and brain. But crucially, each of these options is em- empirically equivalent. Um, you can't do an experiment to, you know, decide which is the right answer here because each theory just will just interpret the data of the experiment on their own terms. So, so that's what I mean. It's not a question for the science of consciousness. It's a question. It's a philosophical question. We just have to try and evaluate these options on their own terms. For example, the physicalist claims to be able to explain consciousness in terms of physical process in the brain. How well have they done at that? Is that a coherent project? Mm-hmm. My answer to that is not very well. And no, it's not a coherent project. All, but then the panpsychist has the mirror image explanatory project. You know, they, they aspire to be able to explain physical reality in terms of underlying facts about consciousness. How well have they done at that? I think we've actually sort of worked out how that could be done. The mysteries have sort of been solved there. So, so there are ways of evaluating these options, maybe in terms of simplicity, maybe in terms of how, they, how well they fulfill their explanatory aspirations. Um, and that's a sort of philosophical issue we need to decide on with philosophical methods. That's how I think about it. I guess the question would be, why is this important? Or rather, maybe more specifically, you know, what's the kind of impact that this has? Like if we, if we, if, if we, I mean, I don't think there's universal agreement ever on anything, but let's say there's, you know, more agreement on, yep, you know, <clears throat> neutrons and photons and, you know, cells and everything has some element of consciousness. 
know, how does that really, you know, change how we interact with everything? How does, I mean, what's the implications, I guess, if there is agreement that this is true, at least philosophically, and maybe at some form down the road, scientifically, what is, what's the implications, I guess, if that's true? I'd say a few things in answer to that. I mean, one is, I don't think um, there needs to be practical implications for something to be, we're back to worth doing. To <laughs> I was going to say, doing, going back know, to the beginning of the conversation. Art, <laughs> <laughs> art, music, you know, I think there are things, I think it's a natural, noble desire to try and understand reality, try to have our best guess as to what reality is like. And this is one of those big, questions about the nature of reality that we can wrestle with. And I think it's an important part of the human condition to do so. But, you know, you never know the practical spin-offs of things. Mm -hmm. And I think the philosophy of consciousness, together with the science of consciousness, is part of a big project of understanding consciousness, which does have profound practical importance. For example, to know whether, for example, to know whether people in comas are conscious Mm -hmm. to know thinking about abortion you know what stage does the fetus become conscious Mm -hmm. which animals are conscious thinking about animal welfare Mm -hmm. you know a fish conscious Um, so I think you know there are all these important implications and it you know I guess this is more relevant to the science of consciousness which kinds of brain activity Mm -hmm. go along with consciousness but I think there can be all sorts of ways in which the science and the philosophy interact and impact each other, even though they're sort of distinct enterprises. So, yeah, hmm. I would give those two uh, yeah. two answers. Really, I no, think. I think I think that's right. I think it is. It oh, also, is just finally, I mean, I've just sorry to. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I talked a lot about in my first book, in my book, Galileo's Error, the you know, the potential to transform your relationship to the environment if. Mm-hmm. If you think a tree is just a mechanism, then yeah. your conception of its value is just what it can do for us. But if a tree is a conscious organism, albeit of an alien kind, then it, it has value in its own right. So I do think it's potentially transformative of our relationship with the, the natural world and maybe the universe more generally. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Well, that is, that's a good place to end. Um, I have to say you are too much fun to talk to. I could talk to you for hours and, and debate and wrestle these things. I really, really, really did have a lot of fun. Uh, oh, me too. And, um, but yeah, it's good to really dig deep into the, the value stuff. Yeah. It's a fun, it's a fun, fun thing to wrestle with. My, my close friend, John, who I referred to earlier cause I kissed his girlfriend, but still good friends actually. And he always says to me, I preferred your philosophy when you were into that morality stuff and into all this consciousness. So it gets too technical, it's boring. Can't you go back to doing that? So I, I think there is a real fun discussion there. there. It's like, there you know, it's, it's people's, you people, know, it's, people see the, like the use of it, like all the time. Like it's yeah. like very tangible for them. Uh, the book is called why the purpose of the universe. Uh, this is through Oxford. Um, best places to find you or anywhere you want to point people to. Oh, I should plug my podcast, Mind Chat, mm. that I do with philosophy professor Keith Frankish, who has the polar opposite opinion to me. Nice. He thinks consciousness, in the sense philosophers talk about it, is an illusion. I think it's everywhere. He thinks it's nowhere. And we're trying to model constructive disagreement. Uh, nice. We've had a bit of a hiatus. Mm. 
uh, for various reasons. But I think we're about to kick that off again, probably with a podcast on my book. Nice. <laughs> and nice. Um, uh, I, well, I recently debated Sean Carroll, the physicist, and that, that's on that channel. Um, Very nice. I like to argue on Twitter a lot. I guess we need to be finding other places outside Twitter. I don't know, but I'm still stuck on Twitter. Yeah. Philip underscore Goff like to argue there. Mm-hmm. And Philip Goff philosophy. Um, I have I, I, set up a WordPress that I, I keep promising I'm going to start doing <laughs> regularly, but um, nice. which is just my name. But I, 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 I must admit, I haven't written very much. <laughs> well, but yeah, there's lots of philipgoffphilosophy.com, lots of articles and web videos. That's great. Uh, well, Philip, again, this was this was so much fun. Uh, I, I could do this so much more often with you. So I, I really do appreciate you giving me your time and your energy and your fight. Uh, I do I do enjoy all of it. So it really was a lot of fun. I really appreciate it. Oh, thanks, Xavier. It's been enjoyable. Yeah, thank you. Thank you.